How many people are excited that it's Christmas Eve? How many people are like, oh my goodness, it's Christmas Eve? And they're, yeah, see, and all the parents were like, yeah. Well, in less than 24 hours, it is Christmas Day, y'all, which is very exciting. And I bet one thing on everybody's minds all around the world, they're thinking about, you know, a lot of all the Christians were thinking about Jesus, but the whole world is also thinking about gifts, right? Everybody's thinking about gifts right now. They're like, what gifts am I going to get tomorrow under the tree? What gifts am I going to give? What gifts do I still need to wrap? What gifts have I forgotten about? What gifts did I buy like several months ago and I hid away? And now I need to figure out where I hid it. Any parents, you forgot where you hid things? And you're thinking about all these different gifts about um, for Christmas, and maybe they were hand-selected by you or they've been handmade by you. But also... I love to see how people wrap gifts on Christmas because I think there's two different, like, well, there's a few different categories. Now, there's the extreme wrappers where your wrapping is even more fancy than the gift itself. Like, y'all know who you are. That is a gift for you. That's a spiritual gift of wrapping gifts. But then there's other people where you're more like, if I just have a bag, we're good right? You just, you put it in a bag, no tissue paper. You just, just put it in a bag. And sometimes it's the bag you got from the store itself. You're just like, I got you a gift, right? There's that kind of people as well. But then there's other people that like to get a bit creative with their gift wrapping. Have you ever been given a gift, you know, in a really big box? And then there's a smaller box inside and a smaller box, smaller box, smaller box. Did anybody get proposed to that way? The little engagement ring in the very last box that happens before, or maybe you wanted to just get, you know, the person you're giving a gift to to play their own version of pass the parcel and you wrap the gift like five times in five different wrapping papers just to make them work for it. I remember back when I wrapped some of my siblings gifts when I was younger, we would sometimes just to make them really work for it, wrap it with duct tape, you know? Yeah, see, you know, but see, then they can just go get the scissors. Even better, you wrap it with rubber bands. Then they really have to work for it. And all the teenagers, that's how you can wrap your parents' gifts tomorrow. Because they can't cut those off. Those will pop off. So they got to carefully unwrap every single rubber band. Or maybe, have you ever been pranked with a box where your presents, uh, your parents gave you a present and you unwrapped it and it's like a microwave box? And you're like, thanks, mom and dad. Really needed a microwave. But really your present is inside. Or maybe they did it the cruel way and they gave you an iPhone box that just had chocolate inside. You know, there's... There's so many ways that you can wrap a gift, and there's so much fun to it. And as for the first Christmas day was approaching over 2,000 years ago, God had already begun to wrap the greatest gift that the world would ever receive. You see, it wasn't a last-minute gift. It wasn't a stock standard gift. It wasn't just a token gift. It had been a gift that he had been planning since the beginning of creation. In fact, he had been wrapping this gift for centuries before the world ever laid eyes on it. Now, you might be thinking, Darcy, how does it take that long to wrap a gift? Well, today we're going to dive into that question because I've got a message I'm calling Wrapped in Wonder. Wrapped in Wonder. And we're going to go to the book of Luke, chapter 2. It's going to be on the screen or you can read along with me. It says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. 
Now, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now, if you've ever seen the nativity set, does anybody have a nativity set in your house right now? Yeah. If you've ever seen a nativity set, which I'm sure most of you have, you likely would have seen something that looked like a barn or a stable. And then inside you got the little figurines of Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus. And there's some figurines of a shepherd and his sheep because he had to bring them along for the journey. And some wise men and their camels, right? And they're all there looking at this sweet little baby swaddled up in cloths lying in a manger. And this is the moment that God revealed the greatest gift humanity would ever receive. A gift that came in the form of this sweet little baby wrapped in cloths by his mother and then placed lovingly in the only thing available to resemble a cot, which was a manger or feeding trough. Now you might be thinking, Darcy, if God had been wrapping this gift for centuries, that's the best he could do? Like he had been planning this since the beginning of time and that's his wrapping of choice? Surely he could have done better than a barn, right? Surely he could have done better than a stable. Well, if we wanna get biblically accurate, it probably wasn't a barn or a stable. It was more likely actually to be a cave. Um, because that's where they would often shelter animals in that period of time. And then the manger probably wasn't this cute little wooden manger. It was probably a stone manger within the cave. Okay, well, is that the best God could do? A cave and a stone manger. Like, surely he had better wrapping than this. Well, see, this wrapping that we see on the very first Christmas day may not be the wrapping that we expected. It may look poor and lowly and be such a humble entrance for our newborn king, but this is the type of gift that had layers. There were many layers to get this gift, and there was more to the wrapping than just the shelter that he was born into or the manger that he was laid upon. This was a gift with layers. You see, the greatest gift was wrapped in prophecy. If you never heard the word prophecy, that simply means a prediction of what will come in the future. A prophecy in the biblical context was a word given by God to a prophet who would then speak it out or write it down to declare what God was going to do in the future. And, you know, when I was pregnant with Boston, I, I love to write poetry, spoken word poetry, and I sat down with God to write out a spoken word for my son to prophetically speak over his life what I believe God was telling me about him before I ever even met him. And then I did the same with Oakley. And so they both have these spoken words that I can give to them when they're older to remind them of the greatness that God has on their life. And God told me about them and what they were going to do in their life before I ever even laid eyes on them. You see, before the world ever met Jesus, he was wrapped in prophecy. Prophecy. Hundreds of prophetic words that God spoke through a variety of people in a variety of different places to let people know about the Savior and the Messiah before the world would ever meet him. See, God told us about his greatness before we ever even witnessed that greatness with our own eyes. In Isaiah chapter 7, it says in verse 14, Therefore the Lord will give you a sign. And Anna was just reading this out earlier. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. You know, a couple weeks ago, we spoke about Isaiah 9. And in verse 6 to 7, it ended by saying that he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. 
Later in chapter 11, verse 1 to 5 says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Remember that name. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will urge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist then later in chapter 52 it says he grew up before him like a tender shoot like a root out of the dry ground he had no beauty or majesty majesty to attract us to him nothing in his appearance that we should desire about him he was despised and rejected by mankind a man of suffering and familiar with pain like one from whom people hide their faces he was despised and we held him in low esteem In the book of Micah, chapter 5, it says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah, but out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son. Church, do you see what I'm trying to show you here? Do you see what I'm trying to show you? He was wrapped in layers and layers of prophecy before the world ever even laid eyes on him. Prophecies that were then fulfilled when he was born to a virgin in the city of Bethlehem with his earthly parents being from the lineage of King David, whose father is Jesse. Therefore, he was the root, the the shoot that came from the root of Jesse with no beauty or majesty or fanfare about his moment of arrival. In fact, he had the most humble and lowly entrance into the world. He was rejected by mankind, eventually being crucified, fulfilling more prophecies before he died and then was raised again to new life. My goodness, what detailed and intricate wrapping is this? If you just look at all of the prophecies that came to pass through the life and ministry of Jesus, he was wrapped in prophecy. But also the greatest gift was wrapped in history. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, it says, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Y'all, the set time had fully come. And in another translation, it says the fullness of time. That's when God sent his son. But why then? Why not earlier? Why not later? And why did he come as a baby? Maybe you've asked these questions before. Well, let me tell you what's so incredible about Jesus. Jesus was fully God while also being fully man. Now, I know that's really hard for our brains to comprehend, but he was fully God and fully man. That means his deity and his humanity coexisted within him. Now, humanity in their best efforts could not make themselves right with God. They needed a way to be reunited and reconnected with their heavenly father. They needed a way, they needed a savior. Now, if Jesus was just a man, as many non-Christians like to believe, they'll say, oh, he was a good teacher, but he was just a man. Well, then him dying on the cross could have only saved one person. And here's what I mean. In Old Testament times, people would sacrifice an unblemished lamb to atone or pay for their sins. So a lamb would take their place. 
You know, if I wanted to atone for your sins, I could only take the place of one person, life for life, human for human. But because Jesus was also fully God, he could take the place for all of humanity and atone for all of our sins. So he was born under the law in a human birth, but also was able to redeem those under the law because he was God himself. In Isaiah 53, verse 7 and 8, it says he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He was our unblemished, sacrificial lamb. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He took our place. So when Galatians said that he was born under the law to redeem those under the law, That's speaking to both his humanity and his deity. Now, not only that, but culture had reached this interesting point in time, this interesting point in history, one that almost seemed perfectly primed to receive Jesus and share the good news about Jesus. For starters, sin had increased in the world dramatically. All you got to do is read the Old Testament to realize it was the wild, wild west, y'all. Okay? It was messed up. And you just look at what was going on in the Old Testament, and you would realize how much this broken world needed a savior. They needed another way to make themselves right with God. Now, not only that, but the Greeks and the Romans had established this culture that was going to help facilitate the spread of Christianity. They didn't know it yet, though, and God was going to use all of that for the birth of his Savior. Now, have you ever heard the phrase, all roads lead to Rome? Maybe you've heard that before. Well, the Greeks had established major cities, cities that we hear about in the Bible, like Colossae, Philippi, Thessalonica, Ephesus. Greeks had established these major cities that then were all connected by major highways that all led to Rome. And guess who used those highways? Paul and the other disciples when they went on their missionary journeys from city to city to spread the good news. This infrastructure was set up at a point in history where all of a sudden the good news could spread at a faster rate because all these cities were now connected. The birth of Jesus was wrapped in history. He came at a time when the development of culture was ready to spread the message, but not just by infrastructure, also by language. Now, I don't know if you've heard about the story of the Tower of Babel in the Old Testament, but this was a moment in time where people thought that they could just, through their own efforts, through their own might, build this tower to reach the heavens, to reach God. And God was like, nah, that's not how we're going to do it here. And so he decided he confused all their languages in that moment, and he scattered the people. They could no longer understand each other. Well, time had progressed up until a point where all of a sudden Greek was one of the most dominant and accessible languages in the ancient biblical world that many people understood. So he came at a time where language development had evolved to the point where not only could it spread through infrastructure of the roads, but also through the language that many people could understand, the language of Greek. And even if you heard Frosty's message last week, he talked about pagan nations and how the Magi came. All of this was used for the birth of his Savior. The perfect gift was presented in the fullness of time when they were ready to receive the Savior and spread the good news. The greatest gift was wrapped in history, but it was also wrapped in mystery. There were layers and layers of prophecy, layers and layers of history, but there were also layers and layers of mystery. Now, why did this gift arrive in the way it did? Why wasn't Jesus This mighty king riding in on a white horse, that's the savior they thought they needed. 
That's the savior that they wanted, somebody to ride in to lead an army. Why was there not more fanfare about the birth of this royalty? Just think about the royal births and the hap- that happened in the UK. So much paparazzi, so much fanfare about little baby George being born or whoever it is, right? If this truly was the newborn king, why wasn't there more fanfare and more majesty about this moment? More grandness. But instead, his birth was so humble, and it was almost this silent entrance into the world, and that adds to a bit of the mystery of our God. Now, let's just go back to that picture of the nativity scene just for a moment, because we talked about how it was more likely a cave rather than a stable, but it could also have been the ground floor of a home, because ancient Palestinian homes had two levels. The The ground floor was often open to the outside, and they would bring their animals in for the night for safekeeping, and upstairs was commonly referred to as the upper room. Maybe you've heard that before. Now, if Joseph is going back to his hometown to be counted for the census, it is likely that Joseph would have gone to stay with relatives. Even if his close immediate relatives weren't there in that city, all he had to do was say he was from the lineage of David and anybody from that lineage would have taken him in. That was just the ancient etiquette of staying with relatives when you'd go back. So it was likely that he went back to knock on relatives' doors to see if anybody could take them in. And when we see these nativity plays, what we often see is they come and they knock on the innkeeper's door, and when we see that, we think of a motel inn, right, where you hire a room for the night from a stranger. But the Greek word used for inn here in this nativity story is different than the Greek word used for inn in the story about the Good Samaritan when he put up a man in an inn to help take care of him. Those are two different Greek words. The one used in the nativity actually also refers to a guest room in somebody's house. He wasn't going to a motel inn. He was going to knock on relatives' doors to see who had space in their guest room. Now, I don't know about ancient biblical hosting etiquette, but if family is coming to stay at my house and all the family is coming back into this town to be counted for the census, if a pregnant lady comes, she's going to get the bed. Okay? That's just how I would do it. The etiquette in my house would be like, oh, okay, the pregnant lady showed up. doesn't matter if the cousins and the uncles and the aunties got here first. Kick them out. Put them. Cousins, teenagers, y'all can go sleep with the animals. Pregnant lady gets the bed. Like, that's just how I would do it. So I, when I'm learning about this ancient Jewish culture and thinking, okay, well, Joseph, he would have gone to stay with relatives. He would have gone to knock on some doors. And everybody's like, sorry, we got no room. Other family got here first because all this family's coming back to be counted for the census. So I keep asking, why did Joseph's family not make room for them? She was pregnant. She was nine months pregnant. Like she needed the best room in the house. And so I went down on this thought process thinking, well, his family probably knew that Mary got pregnant out of wedlock. They probably knew that this wasn't Joseph's biological baby And maybe they just thought Joseph was being kind to stay with his promiscuous wife. They didn't get the visits from the angels. The angels didn't go tell the relatives that this was the son of God, right? And so maybe like most family who is loyal to a fault do, maybe Joseph's aunties were like, sorry, Mary, we ain't got room. You could go stay with the cows. You'll fit right in. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just hypothesizing, y'all, okay? 
I'm not saying that happened, but I have asked the question, why did they not make room for the pregnant lady if they were family? These are just the questions that go on in my mind when I'm reading the Bible, okay? (laughs) See, maybe there was a level of beef in the family about how this baby came to be. But most definitely, there was unbelief at who this baby was. For some reason, they didn't believe this was the Son of God because if they did, they would have made room. If they truly believed that Mary was carrying the Savior of the world, they would have made room. But for some reason, they didn't. And Mary and Joseph instead were sent downstairs to be with the animals and give birth amongst the hay and lay the most perfect gift the world had ever seen in a humble and lowly manger. You see, the arrival of this gift was wrapped in mystery. Very few knew the reality of who he was. And even those that knew didn't know the fullness of what he was going to do for them. He was wrapped in prophecy, history, and mystery. Keys can come join me now. Now, have you ever opened a gift and the giver is watching you open it? Which, Kiwis, I know y'all hate that. But when you open a gift, have you ever opened one and you have no idea what it is? But you got to control your face in the moment. So you're like, thank you. I love it. What is it? Right? (laughs) Have you ever had that moment? Like that was me, honestly, at like my baby shower with Boston. Some of the gifts you get given for like a new baby and a postpartum mom, you're like, "I, I know I need it, but what is it? And things had to be explained to me. Have you ever had that moment where you open something up and you're not exactly sure what to do with it? With some of those baby shower gifts, people explained to me what they were, and I only realized the value of them later on when they were comforting my baby or healing my body. And I I imagine Mary and Joseph being in that position on the first Christmas day where Mary has just given birth in a not-so-pristine environment, and they're poor, And we know that because later, when they made an offering 40 days after he was born, we know that they purchased a pair of young pigeons, or two turtle doves. It's in a song, y'all. And that was known to be a poor woman's sacrifice. The proper purification sacrifice for the firstborn son was a lamb. But they couldn't afford a lamb to sacrifice to God, yet they were holding the lamb of God. Poetic. Imagine, though, in that moment after birth where she wraps this baby in the best cloths that they have. I bet you her and Joseph looked at each other and they were like, what do we do now? How do we raise a baby? And how do we raise a baby who is God? Like that's a lot of pressure. Have you ever thought about that? Anybody that's, you know, been in the hospital or at home, wherever you gave birth, I don't know, but you're given the baby and then you're sent home. And I'm thinking, midwives, y'all aren't coming with me? Like, you're just going to trust me to take this baby home and keep them alive? I don't know what to do. Imagine your baby was God. That is a lot of pressure on Mary and Joseph to keep them alive. Y'all, in those newborn days, there's so many times I was Googling what was wrong. Like, I needed to know what to do as a parent. I'm praying to God what to do. If you have a baby who is God, do you ask him? Hey, what do we... Are we doing an okay job? Are you all right? (laughs) That's a lot of pressure for Mary and Joseph. They were trusted with the Son of God. And when they swaddled that sweet baby, they wouldn't have fully understood the magnitude of who he was 
or what he was going to do or the comfort and healing that he was going to bring, they were only going to realize that through time and through the sacrifice that he would one day make. You know, I find it interesting that Jesus said in Mark chapter 6, verse 4, that a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own family. See, when I look at this nativity story and I look at ancient Jewish culture, I come to the conclusion that Joseph's relatives were likely close by. If they weren't upstairs, they were at least in the same city because they're all getting counted for the census. If they were upstairs, it was likely that they would have heard the birthing pains coming through the floorboards. It was likely that they would have heard baby Jesus's first cries, but why are the relatives not mentioned in this nativity story? We know that the shepherds came immediately once they heard the good news from the angels. We know that the magi, the wise men, started to travel and come, even though it likely took them a couple years to get to Jesus, they came ready to worship and to bring him gifts. But did the relatives even come down the stairs? I don't know. But I, I look at this story and I'm thinking, maybe they just thought this was just another baby. And it wasn't Joseph's biological baby. So maybe they allowed unbelief to cloud their judgment and they missed out on the wonder of Christmas. Despite knowing the prophecies and they would have known them because they were Jewish. They would have known he was gonna come to a virgin in the city of Bethlehem, tick, tick. But still, there was some mystery that they couldn't wrap their heads around. They would have known the history uh, of their people and God, but for some reason, they couldn't fathom the mystery of this divine pregnancy. They couldn't fathom the mystery of the Son of God's humble entry into our broken world. You know, earlier this week, my little sister, she gave birth to her first baby boy. He is so cute. And I would give anything to be there right now, cuddling that sweet boy and adoring him and showering him with gifts, but I'm on the other side of the world and it's likely that Joseph's family was just upstairs and they're not even mentioned in the scriptures at the birth of Jesus. Church, do not let the mystery of Jesus cloud your judgment on who he is. Don't let the mystery fuel your unbelief in your heart. Don't let the mystery cause you to miss out on the wonder of this precious gift. Instead, what you can do is stand on the prophecies. There's hundreds of them. You could comb through the history, do some fact checking, and all of that would give you enough evidence to actually just embrace the rest that remains a mystery. Because the greatest gift that the world would ever receive is wrapped in so much wonder. His name is Jesus, Emmanuel our God who is with us. And he is a gift for all of humanity, for all that would choose to receive him, for all that would choose to unwrap the wonder for themselves and embrace the mystery and come adore him and worship him and surrender to him. So stand on the prophecies, comb through the history and embrace whatever still remains a mystery. Amen.